Good morning. Great to see you this morning. I'm Daniel, one of the pastors here. If I haven't met you, I would love to meet you. Uh, and we are in a series in the book of Acts uh, over the past couple months, and we'll continue through May. Uh, and I have loved how God has been bringing His timely Word uh, to my life uh, as we've studied the book of Acts and how He's been doing that, I believe, for us as a church. Uh, last week we looked at Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. The early Christian community was exploding and growing quickly by the power of God through the Holy Spirit. And the early church appoints seven people who will care for the poor, the widow, the needy. And the church continues to increase as it lives as a beautiful family. Uh, the early church uh, was living on God's mission, as we have been seeing in last week. They were displaying the beauty of the church as it grows up and as it matures. The beauty of being a diverse family, culturally and socioeconomically. Uh, a family where every member is a minister. Everybody is all in for the kingdom of God. And a family that loves the word of God and loves deeds of mercy and justice. And this week we're going to look at one of the men who was appointed to care for the poor in chapter 6. A man named Stephen. Luke, uh, who is the author of Acts, uh, gives a good portion of this letter to Stephen. Stephen is someone I think we don't hear enough about uh, now, though the early church celebrated him greatly. Uh, St. Stephen's Day, if you grew up in a, kind of a historical tradition church, maybe you know it's the day after Christmas. They celebrate St. Stephen. We, the church, have celebrated St. Stephen. John Newton, the great hymn writer, wrote a whole hymn based on the life of Stephen. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great British preacher, preached... 38 sermons on Stephen. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to preach 38 sermons on the life of Stephen, Acts 6 through 7. But all of that is to say there is much for us to learn from the life of Stephen. This morning we're going to look at Acts 6, 8 through 15, and then Acts chapter 7, 54 to 60. So if you will stand as we read God's word together. This is God's word to us this morning. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this whole place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of of an angel. And then Stephen gives this long speech, and then we pick up in chapter 7, verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. 
And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Isaiah 40 tells us the grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray again. Lord God, I ask that you would speak to us, that you would enable us to see, to see you, Jesus, and to believe the greater truth of who you are to us and in this world. Lord God, would you help those of us who are doubting, those of us who are struggling, those of us who may not believe, those of us who believe and may be feeling like we're in a good place, would you meet us wherever we are this morning and open the eyes of our hearts, change us as a result? Would you speak, remove me, so that I might be seen? It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, Rachel and I got hooked to the fastest growing podcast in the history of National Public Radio uh, a few months ago. It's a podcast called Serial. I don't know if any of you listened to Serial. It's a podcast that's been downloaded more than 68 million times. It's a series of podcasts about the murder of Haman Lee, an 18-year-old high school student in Baltimore, Maryland, murdered in the year of 1999. And Lee's ex-boyfriend, Adnan Saeed, was arrested and ultimately charged with the murder of Haman Lee and given a life sentence, though Adnan declares himself innocent. And Sarah Koenig, who was the host and the co-producer of Serial, takes the listener into the details of the murder, the questions that surround the murder. She interviews Adnan and as many people as she can that were connected to this case. And after all the episodes there's still a lack of clarity on who killed Haman Lee and if Adnan is guilty or innocent. Everything in this case, which is now going to retrial, hinges on the testimony of witnesses, which is true for most murder cases or any criminal trial. One witness in particular, Jay, is the, the kind of linchpin against Adnan. But there are many other witnesses and testimonies that support Adnan's case. A witness is someone who gives testimony about seeing an event take place. The verb to witness is to see an event take place. It's giving evidence or proof about something that is unclear. Right? A witness gives clarity to what may seem unclear. And the murder of Haman Lee is unclear. So the state of Maryland and the defense attorney of Adnan collect as many witnesses as they can to support their case. Acts chapter 6 through 7, Stephen is being charged by the highest court in the land, the Sanhedrin, with speaking blasphemy. Stephen is on trial for the words that he has spoken, Acts chapter 6 verse 11 says, against Moses and God, against the law of God and against God himself. And many false witnesses are brought to testify against Stephen. But Stephen is also ready and willing and able to testify, to give witness to who the true God is. You see, at this point in Jerusalem, there are still many who do not understand Jesus. Many who are unclear. And Stephen is ready to be a witness 
about Jesus and about Christianity to make Christ clear. And as we read at the end of chapter 7, Stephen will be killed for his testimony. Stephen is the first Christian martyr. You know that martyr's original meaning is witness? It's where martyr means to witness. It was often used in the early church as many martyrs would ultimately die for their testimony and their witness about Jesus. Many today all around the world still die for their witness about Jesus. When I was in college, I read the book Fox's Book of Christian Martyrs. If any of you have seen that book, I've always been amazed and encouraged and challenged by people who are willing to die for their faith and for their witness about Jesus. If you get a chance, you should read the stories of Polycarp and Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer and John Huss, many who have witnessed about Jesus and killed for their faith. But you really don't even have to go read this book. You can pick up the newspaper and you can say many around the world who are being killed for their witness and their faith in Jesus. Now listen to, listen to this quote that I'm about to read because this sermon kind of depends on you getting this quote. N.T. Wright says about being a martyr than a witness, right? which is what Stephen was. He says it may be when a person is a martyr witness, it is at this point that a person stands at the threshold of heaven and earth, still in earth, but called to give up their life for the faith. And it is at this point that they may be for a moment in a position where they can, as it were, see both dimensions of reality and speak about the normal hidden one to people who cannot yet see it for themselves. A Christian witness is someone who is able to speak about the truths of Christianity, which may be hidden or unclear to some people, and make them known. I'm not sure where you are this morning. If you come here and you're not a Christian, but you're asking questions about Jesus, And it's hard to lift your eyes away from the cloudy confusion that you find yourselves in in this journey of what Christianity is all about. Maybe you're a Christian and you're struggling and you're doubting Christianity and it is hard to lift your eyes away from your questions. Maybe you feel weighed down by life right now. And it is hard to lift your eyes off of your circumstances. Stephen is a witness this morning pointing our eyes to a greater reality, one that we may not always see and maybe have never even seen before. See, Stephen starts by making the gospel of Jesus clear, by being a witness and giving, which we did not read in chapter 7, but he gives a very offensive speech. Stephen was speaking in the synagogues, and he was speaking with incredible wisdom, full of the Spirit. He's brought before the Sanhedrin on trial for blasphemy, And then in chapter 7, he speaks. And he tells the story of Israel. Starts with Abraham, then to Joseph, then to Moses, then to David. And he tells it in a slant that those listening were not very comfortable with. He roots the history of Israel in their idolatry. In their idolatry. He talks about the selling of Joseph by his brothers to Egypt. The mumbling and the complaining of Israel in the wilderness. The making of a golden calf. 
The ancestry of Israel was made up of idol worshipers. And then Stephen talks about the temple that Solomon made. And then he quotes Psalm 110 that says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. And then he calls those listening stiff-necked, resisting the Spirit. And then he says this, As your fathers did, so do you. And Stephen is saying they have made the temple an idol. They are idolaters just like their ancestors. You can see why it's a little bit offensive. His comments about the temple is what ultimately leads to his death. The temple was one of the key symbols of Judaism. And Stephen is saying you're worshiping the temple rather than the one who fills not just the temple but fills the whole earth. Stephen gives witness to this reality. That the gospel of Christianity only becomes clear that the cloud of confusion surrounding Jesus is only lifted away when we begin to see our own idolatry. The first thing that Stephen gives witness to is until we own our own idolatry, we will never understand the greatness of Jesus Christ. And idolatry is not just making a golden calf or a wooden carving, or a stone statue. It's making or having anything that is loved more, honored more, worshipped more than God. Idolatry is the ultimate sin. It is the sin which causes every other sin. It's what Martin Luther, the great reformer, taught. Luther said of the Ten Commandments, if you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, that the breaking of any of the commandments is always a first breaking of the first commandment. You know, the first commandments, thou shalt not have any gods before me. In other words, having other gods above the true God is the sin beneath every sin. The times of clarity, when we see Jesus clearly and we understand the gospel of Christianity, are always when we're seeing our own sin and our own idolatry. It was true for Adam in the garden was true for Isaiah as he beheld God's holiness, was true for the woman at the well in John chapter 4, it was true for the thief on the cross, it was true for Paul, which we'll see in a few weeks, that to see the fullness of Christ, we must see the fullness of our sin. If you're not a Christian, if you're a struggling Christian, if you've been a Christian for a long time, our hearts are prone to idolatry prone to making other things more ultimate than God. And the things that we make more ultimate than God are not always bad things. They can be and are often good things. We can make idols out of family, idols out of our pursuit of love or our pursuit of our career or a societal cause or sex or drugs. I could go on and on. So here's a question. How do you know what you're making an idol. How do you know what you're worshiping more than God? Let me give you a few ways to know. I love what William Temple once said. William Temple said, your religion is what you do with your solitude. Your religion is what you do with your solitude. In other words, the true God of your heart is what your thoughts go to when there's nothing else demanding your attention. When you're all alone, Nobody's around and you're daydreaming. What does your mind think about? Another way, look at how you spend your money. Our money often follows what we love most. 
Another thing, look at your uncontrollable emotions or just your emotions in general. What does your anger say about you and what you might be holding on to? What does your fear say about what you might be holding on to and worshiping ultimately? Tim Keller has a list of 20 questions that helps to identify the idolatry within our own hearts. And I often go back to this, these kind of 20 questions to help me examine my own heart, to help me in my own confession of sin. And I'm not going to uh, list all 20, but I, I'm going to just give you a few uh, to help you kind of examine your heart this morning. Keller says, an idol could be identified when we believe life has meaning or I have worth if. That's the phrase. Life has meaning, I have worth if I have power and influence over others. It's the idol of power. Or life has meaning, I have worth if I'm loved and respected. It's the idol of approval. Or I have worth if I'm sticking to my religious moral codes and accomplished in religious activity. That's called an idol of religion. Or I feel totally independent of organized religion and living by a self-made morality. That's an idol of irreligion. Or life has meaning I have worth if my race and culture is recognized as superior. Racial idolatry. Or I have worth if a particular social group lets me in. It's inner ring idolatry. Or if Mr. and Miss Wright falls in love with me. It's a relationship idolatry. Or my social cause is making progress. Ideology idolatry. <laughs> could go on and on and on. But I, I'd encourage you to, to look at these questions. And the reality is that our hearts are constant idol-making factories, as John Calvin said. Pumping idol after idol, replacing one idol with another idol. It's what we're good at. And Stephen told the Jews in verse 52, you killed the righteous one. The righteous one. Of all the ways Stephen could have described Jesus, he called him the righteous one. Because they were looking to the temple for their righteousness. They were looking to their behavior for their righteousness. And we look to all kind of idols, many that I just described, for our righteousness. And until we see our idols of righteousness, we will never see Jesus as the only one who is fully righteous and ourselves in need of His righteousness that only comes to us by faith alone in Christ alone. The next thing we see that Stephen witnesses, that he's making clear about the reality of Christianity, second, is that a verdict is declared for those who believe in Christ. A verdict is declared. Stephen stands before the highest court in the land, the Sanhedrin, and he is on trial before this earthly court. And they are declaring him guilty. They're full of rage. Verse 54 says they're grinding their teeth. And they're getting ready to take the law into their own hands. And they're going to kill Stephen. But then Stephen in verse 56. Behold, I see the heavens opened. And the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. In the midst of his life being at stake the suffering he's being put through, the crowds shouting out against him, Stephen could have kept his eyes on his circumstances and upon earth, but he lifts his eyes and he sees into the true reality.
complexity and the foggy clouds of confusion that could have come in his suffering are lifted. And he sees Jesus clearly as the door of heaven is opened. Church, we will all experience suffering. And we will hear voices that speak against us. Voices of disapproval. You've heard them maybe your whole life. Voices that say you're wrong. Voices that say you're not enough. There will be suffering and you will experience many people who may disapprove of you and may even be against you. But Stephen is witnessing to a greater truth, a greater reality, that we have one who speaks a greater word over us and for us. Stephen had reason to keep his eyes on his circumstances, to keep his gaze on his suffering. He was being unjustly accused. Everything was going against him, and he lifts his eyes to the heavens. And in this moment, the door of heaven opens, and he sees Jesus clearly, and Jesus is standing at the right hand of God. Throughout Scripture, the right hand of God is the position of power. It's the one who rules and is the judge over all the earth. And Jesus is referred to as the Son of Man, which references Daniel chapter 7 in the Old Testament, the one who is the judge over all the earth. And Jesus is not just sitting at the right hand of God in this vision. He is standing. He is standing. Catch what's happening. Jesus is not just the judge. He is the judge. But He is the judge who is rising from His rightful judgment bench and becoming Stephen's defense attorney, becoming the one who defends Stephen. As the earthly court declares Stephen guilty of blasphemy, the heavenly court, because of Jesus, is making a different declaration. Is declaring Stephen approved, accepted, loved, welcomed. Can you imagine being on trial and the judge who is presiding over your case rises from his or her bench, comes over next to you, and starts to plead your case and all of a sudden becomes your defense attorney. Jesus is a defense attorney with an incredible case. (laughs) See, He's not just pleading over and over for us saying, please, please, please before the Father. He stands as the righteous one. And He pleads our case because of what He has done for us. When the voices come and they say, Daniel, you're not enough. Daniel, you messed up again. Daniel, you're guilty. Daniel, you're not worthy. Jesus stands and declares that because He died a death that I should have died, lived a life that I could not have lived perfectly, by faith in Christ, what is true of Jesus is true of me. He is the righteous one, more than enough, fully loved, and because of Jesus, so am I. And if you trust Christ, so are you. Jesus is both judge and defense attorney. And therefore, a verdict is made for all who trust Christ. Righteous, son, daughter, fully loved, completely forgiven, eternally accepted. So when the shouts of condemnation come, when the voices say, you're not enough, you're not beautiful, you're not good, you're not, you fill in the blank. 
When you hear and you experience disapproval or you experience suffering, Jesus pleads your case. Jesus is for you. Do you see what this verdict does for Stephen? Having Jesus as his advocate makes Stephen a man of peace in the midst of a crowd of rage. Made him a man of boldness in a situation in which he could have been very scared. And made him a man of joy in the midst of suffering. When we hear and when we believe the heavenly verdict that Jesus stands and He defends us and He makes those of us who follow Him people of peace and boldness and joy in spite of what our circumstances might be because we believe that the reality of heaven is greater than the reality that we might be experiencing in this world. If you feel weighed down this morning by circumstances, by your sin, just by life, let's look to Christ and see the greater reality that in Him we're more loved than we've ever imagined. We are more cherished than we could ever dream. We're more celebrated over than we could ever desire. We need to hear His voice of approval this morning. And it's by believing that that we can live as people of peace, boldness, and joy. Lastly, Stephen gives witness to this reality, that the gospel is a declaration of love for enemies. Of love for enemies. Look at verse 59. As they're stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And then he fell asleep. Which I'll always marvel at that. And then he fell asleep. I mean, talk about peace in the midst of suffering. I'm not sure if Stephen's last words sound familiar to you. They're very similar to what Jesus said as he hung on the cross. Both Jesus and Stephen publicly executed in a very torturous way. And when Jesus hung on the cross, he cried out, Lord, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And now Stephen cries out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. I mean, I put myself in Stephen's shoes. I'm crying out, Lord Jesus, rain down some wrath upon them, right? Lord, bring some pain. Do something. He is crying out for forgiveness. How in the world can Stephen pray for forgiveness instead of condemnation? How can Stephen pray and love those who are stoning him to death? Because Stephen sees the gospel clearly. And the gospel is the declaration of Romans chapter 5 that while we were yet enemies of God, Christ died for us. See, Jesus didn't love us to death. Jesus did not love us unto the cross because we were pretty good people. Scripture says we were enemies of God, separated from God because of our sin and our idolatry. And Jesus had a radical love, a love that would cause Him to die for His enemies. Dying for someone who's been your friend or dying for our nine-month-old son or a spouse or a parent, I can get that, right? But to die for your enemy? There's no greater love than this. A radical love, and it's a love that Stephen is displaying for those killing him. The words spoken by a woman at a prison fellowship banquet a number of years ago in Seattle were pretty amazing. She told how this man, John H., had murdered her brother during a robbery. 
served 18 years in prison, and then he settled into life on a dairy farm. And she met him 20 years after he uh, had murdered her brother. And compelled by Christ's command to forgive, she goes to her enemy, to this man, and she forgives him. And then she takes him to her father who was dying, prompting reconciliation between the man who had murdered the man who was dying's son and the father. Now, many would say that this wasn't a success story because John H., he didn't dedicate his life to Christ. But listen to what he said at the prison fellowship banquet as he shared. His voice cracked as he shared, Christians are the only people that I know that you can kill their brother, you can kill their son, and they'll make you a part of their family. He says, I don't know the man upstairs, but he sure is hounding me. See, when we understand and see the gospel clearly, we will be a people of radical love. Not just loving those who love us, that's easy, but loving those who hate us. Because that's what Jesus does towards us. I doubt many of us will go on trial for our faith. I doubt many of us will die for our faith. But all of us are called to have a radical love. What might a radical love for you look like? How might God be calling you to love radically? Let me share one point of application that I know is a call for all of us radical love, and that's to pray. It's to pray for people. That's what Stephen does. That's what Jesus did on the cross. They prayed. And isn't it hard enough to pray for our family, for our church community, and our friends consistently? Right? None of us would want to, to give an account for our prayer life every week, would we? Uh, it's hard enough to pray for those we love, but to pray for our enemies, Do you pray for those who have hurt you? Those who've said things about you? Those who've shamed you? Those who have wronged you in some way? Have you ever tried to pray for someone you hate? What happens is either you cannot pray because the hate's too deep, or God begins to change your heart in the midst of praying from hate to love. If you're harboring hate towards someone, You're not seeing the gospel clearly. Because the truth is we all deserve the wrath of a righteous judge. But instead, we got the love and the acceptance of a heavenly Father because we had Jesus who prayed for us, died for us, rose for us, and is to the right hand of God defending us. If you've ever seen a movie in 3D, a movie where you get to watch wearing 3D glasses, I have to be honest, I have a fairly weak stomach, uh, and so in, uh, I often get motion sickness, and in 3D movies, I can get motion sick. And so there's times during the movie I have to remove the, the 3D glasses. Uh, and I don't know if you've ever done that. You can still see the movie, but it's kind of like this hazy, pixelated, jumbled picture of what's going on uh, in the movie. As we live in a world full of idols... And as we experience suffering and hardship and people's voices of disapproval and even hate, it is hard to lift our eyes up and see the greater reality. And even when we look to Jesus, it could be hazy and jumbled. 
But we need to put on the glasses of Scripture of Acts chapter 6 and chapter 7 and look and listen to the witness martyr Stephen and see the true and greater reality that we're all idol worshipers. Welcome to Christ Central Church. And we confess and we take great joy that we have a Savior who forgives and welcomes struggling, confessing sinners. We have a heavenly judge who is also our defense attorney and through faith in Him declares us loved, son, daughter, accepted, approved. And we have the Savior Jesus who loves us radically, loved us while we were yet His enemies. Therefore, may we be a people filled with peace and boldness and joy and prayer and radical love for others. Let's pray. Lord God, I ask that you would do this in us. Help us to see. Lift our eyes up even now unto the heavens where we see Jesus standing on our behalf, interceding for us. Lord God, we confess our idolatry. We thank you that you forgive us. And we ask that we would understand your radical love. And it might change our lives and the way we love others. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, before you go and get your children, uh, which I'll let you out here in a moment, um, I want to kind of set the table, uh, if you will. Uh, It's been set here, but I'm going to set it uh, for us in our hearts and our minds. You know the only way to destroy our idols? I can't tell you to stop having idols this morning. The only way uh, that we can have our idols destroyed because all of our hearts are made to worship, you're going to worship something. The only way to have our idols taken away is by a compulsive power of a greater affection. Is to have something that captures our hearts that we love more than the idol we're serving and we're loving. And Jesus is the only thing that can be that which satisfies our deepest longings. And this table represents and speaks that truth to us this morning. That He is the only one that satisfies what our hearts look for and chases. And so we come to this meal and we can confess of all the ways we've looked to other things this week instead of Christ. And we're reminded that though we are unfaithful often, He's faithful. He is faithful and cannot deny those who are His sons and His daughters. And He's quick to forgive. In the world full of pain, in a world full of suffering, where you hear many voices speak against you, voices that may say you're not enough, In this meal, you're welcomed because Jesus pleads your case and He says you're more than enough because of what I've done for you. Body broken, blood shed on your behalf. You're loved, you're accepted. At this table, would you hear His voice of approval this morning? And this is a table of radical love. While we were enemies, He died for us. If you're not a Christian this morning, if you're questioning, you're you're skeptical of Christianity, we're really glad you're here. We, we always hope you feel comfortable to be who you are uh, in this journey of, uh, of life uh, with Christ. Uh, but if you're not of a place where you trust Jesus, you know He is the righteous one, you know He's the one you need who can only plead your case, only satisfies, uh, nothing else will. If you're not at that place, uh, we'd, we'd encourage you to remain in your seats and meditate on what's been said, or you can come forward and make this motion, and we'd love to say a prayer of blessing over you. Um, but if you're not there, that no pressure. I want you to be where you are. But if you are a Christian, 
Though you struggle, though you sin, if you believe in Jesus, you're a member of the church. It doesn't have to be Christ Central Church. This is the Lord Jesus' table, not Christ Central's table. If you are a believer, you follow, you're a member of a church, we need to come and we need to feast upon Christ. The ushers are going to let you out row by row. And, so, uh, and if you have children now, you're welcome to go get them from children's church or from nursery. We'd love for you to bring them down. Uh, if they're not of an age where they've professed faith in Jesus, we would love to say a prayer of blessing for them. Uh, and the ushers will let you out. There's red wine, white grape juice. There's gluten-free bread um, and regular bread as well. And so I'm going to pray as those who are serving come forward. So if you will, pray with me. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would turn these ordinary elements of bread, wine, and juice into something extraordinary. That you would meet us and that we would taste and see your goodness this morning in this meal and that you would give us eyes to see. As we've just heard in your word, the witness of Stephen, the witness of your word, would we now see clearly in this meal the truths of who you are to us, how loved we are, the forgiveness offered to us, the body of Christ as we come together. Lord God, would you implant those truths deeper and deeper into our hearts. And may we believe more as a result of your faithfulness to us this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.